You are listening to Dermcast.tv, the official online media resource for the Society of Dermatology PAs. All right, so we're going to spend the next hour talking about hair loss um, in skin of color, and I hope that at the end of this hour you'll have an approach to addressing hair loss in patients with skin of color, um, both in the evaluation and the management, and I'll even give you some biopsy techniques, uh, suggestions as well. And look out for the slides with the little pearl on the top right corner. Those will be sort of the high yield slides and it should all be in your handout. All right, so let's do some pretest questions before we get started. Which of the following is considered to be the best first line option in the treatment of dissecting cellulitis of the scalp? Is it A, adalimumab, B, isotretinoin, is it thromycin, clindamycin plus rifampin, or doxycycline? Good, we'll, uh, we'll learn something. All right, how about question two? And hopefully you'll see the answers to all of these throughout the talk, but we'll go through these answers again at the end. Platelet-rich plasma, or PRP, has anecdotally been shown to be effective in the treatment of which of the following? Androgenetic alopecia, frontal fibrosing alopecia, central centrifugal cicatricial alopecia, lichen planopilaris, or all of the above? Okay, good. I like to see a little bit of a spread. Um, and then number three, which of the following are associated with acne keloidalis nuki, or AKN? Pseudofolliculitis barbie, occupations or hobbies that involve wearing helmets, diabetes mellitus, all of the above, or none of the above? I'm gonna stick black stick stuck on Good, all right, it is all of the above. You guys got this one. And then I think this is our final question. Which of the following is the most likely diagnosis in this patient? Is it traction alopecia, tinea capitis, frontal fibrosing alopecia, CCCA, or dissecting cellulitis of the scalp? All right, good. That's exactly the answer I was hoping to see. So we'll get to, we'll get to all of these. So uh, my approach and my suggestions for your approach to the evaluation of alopecia are as follows. So the first is uh, to really think about the patient's demographics. So different types of alopecia preferentially affect men versus women, uh, different patterns of alopecia are more likely to affect uh, black women versus white women. So for example, CCCA is more common in black women, lichen planopilaris more common in white women, dissecting cellulitis of the scalp and acne keloidalis nuki, although they can occur in women are more likely to occur in men, usually black men. So I think the patient's demographic is important. 
I think their history and the description of their hair loss is also very important. Often we feel like we can diagnose alopecia from the door, and, and many times we can. You know, you walk in and you know, hey, this looks like androgenetic alopecia, but it's still important to elicit that history from the patient. Was it rapid onset? Or has it been insidious? So if you walk in the door and it looks like androgenetic alopecia, but they tell you that they've lost all this hair in the past month, it's not androgenetic alopecia. So the history matters. Are they reporting excessive shedding or clumps of hair coming out in the shower? Maybe that's uh, suggesting telogen effluvium. Are they reporting breakage, meaning it's not long hairs that they're finding on their bathroom floor, it's short hairs they're finding. And maybe it's just the ends of the hair breaking off from uh, damage to the hair shaft itself. And a family history can often be helpful as well, certainly for androgenetic alopecia, and in some cases, CCCA. Of course, the location and the pattern of the hair loss is important. Is it only on the vertex, suggesting something like CCCA? Is it on the frontal hairline only? Is it on the entire hairline, which you can see with ophiasis pattern of alopecia areata? Um, is it diffuse? Is it patchy? For example, the alopecia associated with syphilis can be just patchy and moth-eaten. So the pattern is extremely important. And then, of course, you want to evaluate if the hair loss is scarring versus non-scarring. And this is a patient with CCCA, and the picture on the right is an extreme close-up. And you can see how very shiny now this is the flash, but you can see how very shiny overall the scalp is, and you can see that she is absolutely missing hair follicles uh, throughout this affected area, signifying scarring alopecia. Another thing to evaluate is, is there evidence of ongoing inflammation? So often when patients present to us with, let's say, androgenetic alopecia or end-stage uh, scarring alopecia, you really don't see any evidence of inflammation. But if they do have evidence of inflammation, that can give you a lot of clues as to the cause of their alopecia. So you're looking for perifollicular erythema. Do they have pustules, bogginess? Is the scalp tender? Is it itchy? Is it painful? And here are some patients with, uh, here's some perifollicular erythema in this black woman with lichen planopilaris. Um, she had FF, FFA, the frontal, sorry, the frontal fibrosing type of lichen planopilaris. This patient had uh, erythema that's a little less, is a little more subtle in his case, but erythema and scale throughout the entire scalp, again, signifying ongoing inflammation. And this patient, of course, this is much more obvious with boggy, draining nodules, and he had uh, dissecting cellulitis of the scalp and acne keloidalis nuki. I almost like to see inflammation because then I know that we're at a stage where we can probably still make a difference, right? If we shut the inflammation down, at least we can prevent further hair loss. But often when patients come with end-stage hair loss, the inflammation happened years ago, um, there is a lot less that we can do. So you want to look for hair loss or, hair or follicular inflammation elsewhere. So often patients with lichen planopilaris, particularly FFA, will lose their eyebrows first. 
Um, and as Dr. Ogunleye mentioned this morning, patients with LPP uh, will also lose hair elsewhere on the body as well. So their arms, their legs, they may not have had to shave their legs in years, but they won't tell you that because, you know, that's not an unwelcome um, side effect. So look for hair loss um, elsewhere. The eyelashes and eyebrows can be affected in alopecia areata as well. Um, uh, the beard can be affected by alopecia areata. Uh, and certainly men with dissecting cellulitis of the scalp or acne culoidalis nuchi could have uh, PFB or pseudofolliculitis barbie on, on the beard area. Of course, hairstyling practices can, um, can modify some of the types of hair loss that we see and they can uh, certainly exacerbate them. So you want to elicit what patients are doing on a daily basis to their hair or what types of hairstyling practices they tend to like. Um, and that helps not just with um, trying to diagnose the hair loss, because often the, the hairstyling didn't cause the hair loss most of the time, but it helps you to understand how you can best help the patient manage their hair loss, especially when it's scarring permanent hair loss. Um, we'll, we'll talk about that a little bit more. And then, of course, you want to evaluate the patient's psychosocial support, and we'll talk about the impact of scarring alopecia on patients, but it's important to know what they're doing as camouflage strategies, uh, because sometimes the camouflage strategies can worsen the hair loss, and just to make sure that they have a hairstylist, um, if, if it's applicable, in the community. Um, uh, many black women, they will tell their hairstylist much more than they will tell you. They'll tell their hairstylist more than they'll tell their therapist. Uh, they, they may be seeing this person every two weeks for many, many years. So that relationship is actually really important uh, to help them manage the alopecia going forward. So here's a list of uh, some of the more common types of alopecia in general. The, the top five, they are the types that are generally more common in skin of color. But those with the asterisk, those are the scarring types of hair loss. So CCCA, acne culoidalis nuchi, dissecting cellulitis of the scalp, and LPP, these are the types of hair loss that over time uh, you know, result in permanent hair loss. And you can see that uh, patients with skin of color really carry the burden of the scarring types of hair loss. So it's really imperative that we diagnose early and try to maintain as much hair as we can. Having said that, patients with skin of color can still get the other types of alopecia, right? So not all alopecia in black women is traction alopecia or CCCA. So this patient came to me with a diagnosis of traction, um, but one of the first things she said to me is, I have always worn my hair in a bob. I've never pulled my hair back. I have never worn braids. I have never done a weave. So how could I have traction alopecia? I've never pulled on my hair. And so, you know, I believed her. I biopsied it, and it actually was alopecia areata. This was after one round of intralesional cantilog. Her hair started growing back. So just, you know, don't, don't forget that even though certain types of hair loss are more common in black women, they can still get any of the other types like alopecia areata. And then our old friend, traction alopecia, probably the most common pattern for hair loss in black women, and it's caused by you know, long-term 
uh, traction on the scalp, on the, on the hairs from hairstyling, whether it's a tight ponytail or uh, braids or, or weaves. And you can see this non-scarring hair loss on the hairline that over time can become scarring. However, this is a patient with frontal fibrosing alopecia. We always talk about the fringe sign with traction alopecia where patients can retain that very frontal hairline. Well, I've seen that in FFA as well. So I don't really let this fringe sign dissuade me from thinking about FFA uh, in black women. She was another patient who said, you know, I haven't really put a lot of tension on my frontal hairline, although her hairstyle when she came in did show some tension here. Um, but still I, I still, I believed her and I biopsied her and she indeed had frontal fibrosing alopecia. And we'll see, you'll see her uh, different views of her later where you can also see that she had other clues to frontal fibrosing alopecia like loss of the eyebrows. She had hyperpigmentation uh, on the forehead and, and some, uh, some papules on the face as well, similar to what we discussed this morning in the, the skin of color um, panel. So, you know, just, um, I, I, I really want to spend just a couple minutes talking about the impact of these scarring alopecias on patients. So we did a study a few years ago where we interviewed patients with scarring alopecia, and there were just these recurrent themes of depression and loss of self-esteem, as you can well imagine, and the deleterious impact of scarring alopecia on intimate relationships. So. I had one patient who was a newlywed when I met her, and she had never taken her wig off since, you know, dating, courting her husband, they got married, now they're married, living in the same home, and he had never seen her without her wig. She had this elaborate ritual at night where she would have to wait till he fell asleep, and then she would go to the bathroom, take off the wig, hide the wig, put a scarf on her head and go back to bed, make sure she wakes up before him to go back to the bathroom. You know, this is what people are dealing with. Uh, there's some frustration on the parts of patients that some healthcare providers and even some insurance uh, companies consider alopecia a cosmetic issue and won't cover, you know, intralesional injections um, and some of the other treatments uh, for alopecia. And then a really common theme was uh, this perceived lack of sensitivity and empathy from their healthcare providers. So, you know, I hope that after this talk that you, you, you won't be one of the providers they're talking about. So how can you help patients manage this? So the first thing is, you know, just listen. Just like with something like HS or psoriasis, patients want to talk about what's happening to them because it's just another alopecia for us, and it's, uh, there goes another 30 minutes and I'm already behind, but it's their alopecia and they often have a story, and they just, just give them two to three minutes to really just offload um, what people have told them, what they haven't done, what they haven't tried, they haven't gotten a biopsy, just listen. And I just, again, sort of believe patients when they say, oh, you know, I wasn't, I've never pulled my hair back. I don't habitually put tension on my hair. Um, and so if, if you're hearing things like that, then maybe it is in traction alopecia, for example. So just take some time, 
early diagnosis is critical, and I think scalp biopsies um, should be done more often than they are. They're not easy to do, and I'll give you some tips uh, for that. They take some time. But I've been surprised many times when I think for sure this is androgenetic alopecia and I biopsy and it's actually CCCA, in which case I would have been doing uh, the complete, you know, the wrong treatment for the patient. And just again, just to remind you of this patient who if we didn't biopsy her, she would have you know, stayed with this diagnosis of traction alopecia and in fact now she's on the right treatment for her FFA. You know, appropriate intervention or referral to an alopecia specialist if you don't feel comfortable, of course, but I think you guys will be comfortable, especially after, after today. And, you know, this goes without saying, but examine the hair and the scalp. So even though we can often tell the diagnosis from the door in dermatology, uh, it's really important to patients that you take a look. It suggests to them that you're interested. It suggests that you're thorough. I've had patients tell me that they've seen providers who used a pen to go through their hair, um, and patients are concerned, black women are concerned that their hair and their scalp is distasteful to you. And so, you know, black women often put some kind of moisturizing product on their hair every day, so their hair might be oily, it might be greasy. Well, you know, wear gloves and get in there and take a good look around um, because one, you may miss something, but also it helps the patient to feel like you're really engaged. And so for example, this lady came to me, she said, I'm here for hair loss. So I, where, where, where's the hair loss? You know. And so she opened her hair and there was all this perifollicular erythema, scarring all the way down uh, the, set, the vertex extending down to the occipital scalp. So if she didn't show this to me, or if I didn't get in there and look, I would never have known that she had significant CCCA. And what's nice about her is we were able to treat her, uh, arrest the hair loss, and she has all this hair to cover up that scarring. I also think it's really important, and this is one of the reasons you're here, to educate yourself about the hairstyling culture and practices of the patients where, you, uh, where your practice um, is located. It allows you to have a more robust discussion with your patients about evaluation, about treatment, about management, and it really gives you credibility as a skin and hair expert. If you can have a conversation with your patient about the types of clippers that they should use to prevent AKN, which we're gonna talk about, they're like, oh, okay, they, this person knows what they're doing. They know what they're talking about. If you don't know what braids are or weaves are, that's a whole other lecture. Um, <laughs> a good one, it's a fun one to do. Um, go to YouTube. There are tons of videos of um, you know, where people can literally show you exactly how braids are done, how weaves are done, so you know what you're talking about, and you know what patients are referring to when they say cornrows versus braids. All right, so we'll jump into CCCA, uh, which I'm sure you guys have heard about quite a bit. You can see just uh, going from left to right, mild, moderate, and end stage or severe CCCA. So clearly when we want to intervene uh, when this is, uh, when, you know, we hope that patients will present like this to our office, because at least if we can stop the hair loss here, uh, she has a chance of having good coverage and sort of having a normal life. Uh, but, but by the time you get to this stage, there really is nothing we can do. 
So CCCA is a primary scarring alopecia that commonly affects African-American uh, women. The hair loss typically starts on the vertex and progresses outwards in an insidious and centrifugal manner. They may or may not have scalp paritis or tenderness. They may or may not have a family history. And the link to hairstyling practices is unclear, even though initially it was called hot comb alopecia, then so people thought it was hot combs and people thought it was relaxers, but we actually don't know that at all to be true. And given some of the research that's been done over the past year or two, we're pretty sure now that there's a genetic component, there is a, a natural a hair follicle structural integrity issue, and then then with hairstyling practices, the, the phenotype um, is expressed. Um, but in addition to all of that now, CCCA may be linked to uh, other systemic disorders like diabetes, infertility, and even uterine fibroids. So in terms of management, I see a scalp biopsy not just as a diagnostic tool for CCCA, but also as part of management. One reason is because often by the time patients come to me, they've had this for a while, they've seen multiple providers, they're very frustrated, um, or they are in denial about what's happening. And so sometimes even when it's crystal clear to you that this is CCCA, I'll still offer a biopsy. Um, because I think sometimes when you have something on paper, it can really inform your discussion with the patient about the permanence of the scarring and it can help them sort of come to terms with things a little bit better. But also, a scalp biopsy can um, help you even, you know, I've been fooled. I've been fooled too many times. Androgenetic alopecia, I've biopsied CCCA and it came back tinea capitis. So I, I tend to offer a biopsy more often than not. And so just some tips for biopsying the scalp. Uh, we know that the scalp is extremely vascular. Those biopsies can be, can be a doozy. Um, but I recommend you do two biopsies of similar appearing areas on the periphery of the alopecia. You don't want to biopsy the center of the area of alopecia because there are no follicles there. Um, so the pathologist isn't going to be able to evaluate any of the hair follicles. So you want to get an area that's involved, but there's still hairs there so that they can really see what's happening. I do two biopsies because uh, pathologists who are familiar with alopecia uh, protocols will take one of those biopsies and section them in a, a transverse way so they can look at multiple um, follicles at the same time at different levels. Uh, and the other specimen they'll uh, section in a longitudinal way so they can look at the entire length of the follicle. And that gives them a lot more information and they're able to come up with a more accurate picture for you. I don't do the biopsies adjacent to each other just for practical purposes in terms of closing the biopsy. So I do one, close it, then I do a second one and close it. And I think if you do two next to each other, you end up with a bigger defect and more bleeding but you can do them together if you wanted to. I do a four millimeter punch biopsy and I use 3 nylon or proline sutures. A lot of my colleagues like proline sutures because they're blue and so they're easier to remove, but proline uh, doesn't have great knot security. So after you, you, uh, you place your knot, it loosens and it's bleeding, and then you put the second throw and it tightens, but it's not on the skin. I, I just, I can't, it's too much stress. Because, you know, it's just blood everywhere. So I like nylon, 
And I use the 301 because the needle is really large, so I get, you know, I just go in with one twist of the wrist and it's in and out. And uh, because the suture is nice and thick, it doesn't break when you, when you knot it. Because again, if it breaks with a 4-0 nylon, I'm starting again and more blood everywhere. So 3-0 nylon is my preference. You can use an extra pair of scissors for hemostasis, and I'll show you what I mean by that. And of course, you want to use lidocaine with epinephrine to help with uh, hemostasis. And I let it sit for seven to 10 minutes. I think seven minutes is the minimum for your maximal effect of the epinephrine. So I let it sit for 10 minutes. I go see another patient and come back. And another pair of hands can be very useful, especially if you use the technique I'm going to show you in the, other, in the next slide. And do drape the patient's shoulders, right? Because <laughs> this can happen with your scalp biopsy. It really can. Oof, they're bad. So this is where on the scalp in this patient, I would, I would biopsy just off to the side, definitely not here, right? You won't get any information there. So, so I take an extra pair of scissors or, or, um, or needle driver and have someone who's assisting me place it over the biopsy site and, and really press down. So it gives you a nice circle of hemostasis. Um, so you have a nice clean field that you can work in. You do your punch through the, the handle of the scissors um, and actually just by someone pressing down on that part of the skin, the punch actually shoots up a little bit. Uh, so it makes it easier to remove and then you throw your stitches and then you're out of there in no time. Oh, there's that clinical pearl. <laughs> I, like, I like that idea. Um, so other uh, management for CCCA, it's really important to manage expectations, right? So I tell patients at almost every visit, what we're doing here is to help decrease inflammation and to halt the progression of the hair loss. What we're doing is not going to bring the hair back. I think in some patients, if we catch them early enough, uh, some of the hair follicles may not be completely gone. They may just be sort of, you know, stunned from all of the inflammation or scarring, and they may get some hair back, but, but I don't say that. So, you know, this isn't meant to grow hair back. This is meant to at least stop this process so that patients don't think that um, what you're doing isn't working. So we do potent topical steroids like clobetazole, flucinonide, halobetazole, two to three times a week. And as we mentioned earlier in the panel, ask patients which formulation they prefer. Many will prefer an ointment, uh, but some patients will prefer solution or foam, depending on how they wear their hair. Uh, Intralesional steroid injections every six to eight weeks for a year is my, sort of my preference, and then every few months for maintenance. I use Triumph, you know, Kenalog, 10 milligrams uh, per kilogram, but I would do a lower dose or uh, space out the treatments if the patient's scalp is atrophic. Um, whether they are atrophic because of my injections or just atrophic because of the disease. Um, and I would always concentrate on the border of the scarring alopecia so that you can stop the process from expanding. Um, but I, I, you know, I'll put some in the middle as well, uh, but that's just for sometimes symptomatic relief. If 
CCCA is very, if it's very inflammatory, if the patient has a lot of pustules, um, if it's boggy, if it's tender, I'll do a couple months of doxycycline or minocycline, 100 milligrams twice daily. Some of my colleagues like ketoconazole shampoo. I think part of the, the rationale behind that is if, if you have seborrheic dermatitis, then that's also inflammation and it could be potentiating the inflammation of the CCCA. Um, I tend not to use ketoconazole just because it's so drying, but a lot of my colleagues will add this to the CCCA regimen. I'll give some patients minoxidil 5%, um, especially if they also have androgenetic alopecia. And I always tell them, again, minoxidil doesn't grow hair from scratch, but it takes the hairs that are there and it makes them fatter. It makes them bigger, a little bit darker. You might get a little bit more coverage. And it's so funny how patients are like, but I have to use this forever? I'm like, yeah, but you put like grease on your hair every day anyway. So you're using that forever. You know, you use lotion forever. So like we always have these conversations. But there's something about using minoxidil forever that seems to bother people. And then the idea of if you stop using it, you know, you're going to lose the effectiveness, which is true, that a lot of my patients just don't even bother. Hair transplantation is an option for uh, patients with CCCA once the inflammation has been taken care of and uh, they've had a inflammation-free, kind of progression-free period. Um, transplantation is a little bit more um, technically difficult um, in curly hair, uh, but there are a few of our um, experts around the country, like Valerie, Dr. Valerie Callender, for example, Dr. Mina Singh, uh, they uh, have been um, doing hair transplants in patients with CCCA for many years. And then platelet-rich plasma, there isn't a lot of data out, this, but out there about this, but anecdotally, it may be um, an up-and-coming treatment option for patients with CCCA. Dr. Crystal Agu at Johns Hopkins uh, published this paper. She has a series of patients for whom she's used PRP for CCCA, and, you know, uh, pretty successfully they're getting hair growth, right? We, we can't promise these patients hair growth, but here we are. Uh, and this patient is much, much better. And just another clinical pearl, we touched on this earlier this morning as well, hair breakage or change in the texture of the hair on the vertex of the scalp can be an early sign of CCCA. So if a patient comes in and you can see she has this patch hair of much shorter hair, I would just treat that as CCCA. Treat it very aggressively, do your injections, your topical steroids, because this will make a huge difference, and this patient will not go on to develop this permanent hair loss. All right, so let's move on to acne keloidalis nuke, or AKN. So this is a chronic scarring folliculitis on the occipital scalp and posterior neck that most commonly occurs in post-pubertal uh, black men. Usually starts, uh, you know, under the age of 40, but it's also been reported in other races, and actually there's quite a bit of literature on AKN coming out of Asia. And so patients develop pustules and these firm papules on the occipital scalp and posterior neck, and they're keloidal papules. They're not actually keloids when AKN first starts. If you biopsy a papule of AKN, you don't see keloidal collagen, it's just folliculitis. Um, but over time, they can develop keloids overlying the inflammation if they're keloid prone. 
Um, so patients also develop a scarring alopecia from this eventually, and secondary infections can occur with purulus and abscess formation. Uh, there's some recent literature suggesting that ACAN may be a marker for metabolic syndrome. Uh, so when you see your patients with ACAN, just in, the young men, inquire as to whether they have a primary care physician and talk to them about this, that, you know, maybe hypertension, diabetes, uh, if it runs in your family, especially this could be a marker to us that maybe you're at high risk for that. Uh, anyone who uh, does frequent close shaving at the back of the scalp, that puts them at higher risk for developing ACAN. And any chronic friction like helmets or stiff collars, we believe, can potentiate that um, inflammation as well. This is just a, a photo of um, a patient who, this is an Asian patient who at first, you know, developed the papules, the inflammatory papules, but then over time developed um, what's essentially a true keloid uh, on the occipital scalp. So in terms of management of AKN, you want to avoid close shaving if possible. And I say if possible because depending on the patient's occupation, um, if they're uh, in the armed forces or if they're um, uh, police, for example, they have to groom their hair in a certain way. And so sometimes it's not possible for them to grow a beard or to wear their hair a little bit longer. And so you really want to talk to patients and make sure that your recommendations fall in line with their lifestyle. But the first thing I tell patients is a razor, and I, th I think most black men already know this, but a razor, this type of regular straight razor, should never touch their, their skin uh, because it puts them at much higher risk for um, ingrown hairs in general. So we recommend that they use clippers. This, these are clippers, and this is how clippers are used to fade down the hair on the occipital scalp. And the clippers come with guards. And these guards come um, usually size one through size eight. And the smaller the guard size, the closer the shave. So if someone wants a fade hairstyle, which I'll show you on the, let me see, I'll show you on the next page. This is a fade hairstyle. It's a really common way of grooming the hair for black men. If you want a really nice, close fade, you would actually take the guard off and just use the clipper itself. So strongly recommend to patients that they never take the guard off and just use the number one guard to get their fade. It won't be as tight as you know they probably want it to be, but it really decreases the risk. And then for some patients, maybe the fade hairstyle is not a good option for them and they need to go with the even Steven. I credit my husband with this education gave me a whole education about this. This is called an even-steven haircut, where basically the entire scalp pretty much is, is um, cut at the same level. And so this is a nice even-steven with a clipper guard of one or two. It looks really nicely well-groomed and doesn't put this patient at higher, as high a risk for AKN as this patient, right? Because this is the area where AKN likes to affect, and you can see in this patient there's enough hair there uh, that he's probably not going to have a problem. So once AKN has already occurred or, you know, you, they can't adhere to the avoiding close shaving recommendation, I use uh, topical steroids, topical antibiotics, and topical retinoids. My favorite regimen is to use a strong steroid in the morning, like clobetazole, and a retinoid at night, like tretinoin or adapalene. 
it's hard to get tretinoin covered for non-acne um, uses, so adapalene is over-the-counter, so um, easy enough. And I ask patients to use benzoyl peroxide and clindamycin after shaving. If they can, if their insurance will cover the combination gel, then that's even better. But if not, then I just have them buy benzoyl peroxide, 4% wash, and I give them clindamycin gel or lotion um, so they can apply it right after shaving. And another option is um, NDEAG laser. Uh, there are now a couple of studies talking about this, and just anecdotally, I've, I've used it quite a bit for AKN and for pseudofilliculitis barbie. And these are the settings that uh, were used in this study. Um, and in this study, they did single pulses on the small papules, but when patients had larger papules or those kind, of, those like keloidal plaques, they would kind of pulse stack to, to make sure they got a little bit more energy. And don't forget to examine the beard area of men with AKN. They're quite likely to have pseudofilliculitis barbie, and the recommendations are generally the same uh, in terms of management and the, the shaving techniques. And this is just a, a picture from that paper where they used N the NDIAG laser and compared it to um, triamcinolone injections alone versus um, triamcinolone injections plus NDIAG. And you can see that the patient did much better here on the side with NDIAG plus uh, triamcinolone injections. Um, and I don't think I mentioned that, but intralesional injections of triamcinolone or Kenalog, I use those quite frequently as well, especially for the larger lesions. So now let's move on to dissecting cellulitis of the scalp. So this is another chronic inflammatory scarring alopecia that's more common in African-American men, usually, again, under the age of 40. But it can occur in people of, of all races and ethnicities. Um, and now there are many reports in the literature of it occurring in, in Caucasian, Hispanic, and Asian patients. And the etiology is likely similar to hydradenitis, where you get follicular occlusion, the, follicu the follicle eventually ruptures and spills um, keratin and bacteria into the dermis, and it creates this intense inflammation. So patients who have other disorders of follicular occlusion, like HS, pyelonidal cysts, or severe acne, acne conglobata, are at higher risk for developing dissecting cellulitis of the scalp. There may be a link to Crohn's disease, similar to HS, um, obesity as well. And now there are even more reports of anabolic steroid use leading to dissecting cellulitis of the scalp, as well as a family history of, of the dissecting cellulitis or any of the uh, follicular occlusion disorders. And so these patients, they have these tender, separative, boggy nodules that develop these interconnected draining sinus tracts on the vertex and occipital scalp usually, and they develop um, scarring hair loss over those uh, boggy areas. And it can be quite itchy, and it can be very tender, um, drains a lot, and it's really, really tough disease, hard to, hard to live with and hard to treat. And I uh, just put this up here to remind you that you can get dissecting cellulitis after anabolic steroid use. So if a patient just kind of shows up with this out of the blue, never had um, any dissecting cellulitis before, and if they're sort of not in the demographic that you expect for dissecting cellulitis, do ask uh, about anabolic steroid use. And so management, based on the literature, at this point, we, we used to think that antibi the antibiotics were the first-line treatment for dissecting cellulitis. Doxycycline, minocycline, uh, clindamycin plus rifampin, combination therapy, 
There's even a three times a week azithromycin regimen that I've used before. They work sometimes, but these patients often recur. And now in this day of uh, you know, antibiotic stewardship, um, it's nice that we're getting more data about the use of isotretinoin in this condition. So I would hazard to say that isotretinoin is now first line for dissecting cellulitis of the scalp. And you dose it 0.5 to 1 milligram per kilogram per day, similar to, to acne, for 3 to 12 months. Even low-dose regimens have been shown to be effective, uh, as low as 20 milligrams a day for for six months um, in a couple case studies have shown um, complete remission for some of these patients. I have to say that for many of my patients, I will do a full course, um, you know, maybe a, a total 200 to 50 milligrams um, per kilogram total uh, uh, dosing, whether that takes nine months or 12 months, ho however long. But for some patients, I've had to leave them on low dose indefinitely to keep things away. So I have a couple guys who are just taking 20 milligrams of isotretinoin every day just to keep this quiet. Um, finasteride is another option, uh, anywhere from one to five milligrams daily is in the literature. Um, if I use it, I use it at a, at a five milligram daily dosing. And adalimumab has been used for management of, of this condition as well. 40 milligrams, Q1 to two weeks. Um, I, I like to use it for the, with the HS dosing. I think it works better with the HS dosing for this indication as well. And I spoke to someone in this group yesterday after one of my lectures who does uh, punch marsupialization for dissecting cellulitis of the scalp, which I think was a fantastic idea, similar to the way that it's, it can be done for HS. And she mentioned that she would punch um, the lesion so that it could drain, and then she would inject with Kenalog and then put a pressure dressing on. And I thought that that was a genius idea, so I'm gonna try that as well. Thank you, if you're in here, for your suggestion. And do a fungal culture. So there are multiple case reports of tinea capitis mimicking dissecting cellulitis of the scalp. So you don't want to miss that. That's easy to treat and, you know, um, it's actually not a chronic disease. It's actually good news for the patient. And the earlier you get that, the less likely they'll have long-term hair loss. And this is just from the literature. This was a patient of, uh, after four months of just 20 milligrams of isotretinoin daily. So lichen planopilaris, or LPP. This is a primary scarring alopecia that occurs predominantly in women. It's much more common in, in Caucasian women, but it does occur in African-American women, as you've been hearing throughout this conference. And it's characterized by follicular hyperkeratosis, perifollicular erythema, and scarring hair loss, as you know. And it is a sub uh, FFA is a subtype of LPP, where patients develop this band-like scarring alopecia in the frontal hairline. And this was just my patient, again, with that per nice perifollicular erythema uh, with FFA. And as you've heard a couple times now, LPP is associated with hyperpigmentation on the face and non-scalp scalp hair loss that usually precedes the development of the hair loss on the scalp, eyebrows, forearms, lower legs. And this was that patient who I told you was uh, diagnosed with traction alopecia for many years. And now in this view, you can see she has hyperpigmentation on her forehead and her lateral eyebrow um, is gone. Uh, she also has some pigmentation on the cheek here. So um, indeed, uh, she sort of 
hit all the, the boxes for, for FFE. Sorry, the this, this stuff on this slide is a little small, but I really put it in there for, your, um, for the purpose of your handout. But in addition to topical steroids and intralesional steroids, you can um, start patients on Plaquenil for lichen planopilaris. If they are postmenopausal, you could consider using um, finasteride. There's some emerging therapies for LPP. Pioglitazone has been around for a little while, and I'll talk a little bit about that, and we'll talk about um, PRP. So pioglitazone is an anti-diabetic drug. It stimulates this PPAR gamma, um, which we believe might be a trigger, um, the initial trigger for inflammation in LPP. But the studies are mixed. Based on the science, it made sense that this drug would work, um, but it hasn't, you know, at least not in my hands, I haven't seen a lot of um, great response. But the response is dose dependent. Patients tend to have recurrence after they discontinue it. But if you wanted to try it, I think it is reasonable to try. It's 15 milligrams per day, which is on the low end of the diabetes dosing. And you should check LFTs at baseline and periodically while patients are on it. And shouldn't be given to anyone who has a history of CHF. I think platelet-rich plasma, PRP, that's probably the most promising treatment coming down the pipe uh, for, uh, for LPP. And I'm sure many of you know what PRP is, but for those of you who don't, you draw the patient's blood in the office, uh, spin it down in a centrifuge, it separates out into different layers, and then you uh, withdraw um, into a syringe the platelet-rich plasma, and then you inject it back into the scalp. Um, lots more studies are needed, but the anecdotal data is very promising, and you do injections every four to six weeks for about two to three treatments, and the people who do PRP for LPP say that um, if you don't see any impact by about the second treatment, it's probably not going to work. So some of my colleagues, if they don't see any benefit after two treatments, they will not do the third treatment because they just think it's taking the patient's money for no reason. It is expensive, $800 to $1,100 per treatment in this, in this part of the country anyway. Well, you know, the side effects are minimal, but it can be quite painful. Um, and no lab monitoring or any monitoring is required. It's the patient's own blood products. Um, and this is uh, one of our colleagues, again, Dr. Agu, who treated a series of patients with LPP with PRP, and she actually had pretty good results. So in summary, uh, overall, the scarring alopecias are more common in patients with skin of color, and your approach to, patient requires, to the patient requires empathy and cultural sensitivity. And not all hair loss in black women is CCCA or traction alopecia. Remember that androgenetic alopecia, alopecia areata, LPP, tinea capitis have all been misdiagnosed as CCCA. Frontal fibrosing alopecia occurs in black women, but is often misdiagnosed as traction alopecia. And so scalp biopsies can be important to differentiate the various types of alopecia. And don't forget the guys, um, dissecting cellulitis of the scalp and AKN disproportionately affect black men and cause permanent hair loss as well. And it has the same deleterious impact on self-esteem and quality of life as in women. And they can be markers of metabolic syndrome. All right, here are our post-test questions now. So again, which of the following is associated to be the first-line option in the treatment of dissecting cellulitis of the scalp?
Awesome. Yay. Oh, good. All right, we learned a lot. And then number two, uh, PRP has anecdotally been shown to be effective in the treatment of which of the following? Excellent. All of the above. Perfect. Good. We did better. Excellent. And then number three, which of the following are associated with acne culoidalis nuki? All of the above. Great. And there are last question, which of the following is the most likely diagnosis in this patient? We saw her time and time again. Excellent, FFE. Great, thank you everyone for participating. of the speaker. How useful will this session be in your practice? As a result of this program, do you intend to change your patient care? Looks like we have some questions here. So how do you inquire about family history when assessing hair loss? Um, so I actually ask about hair loss on the maternal side and the paternal side. So ask, does your mom or your grandma um, have um, hair loss like this or any type of hair loss? Um, especially with AGA, I'll ask if there's um, AGA on the father's side. Um, and that, that's it. Uh, let's see. How do you respond to a hair loss patient when they ask if they can proceed with hair coloring or perms during alopecia treatment? So, you know, that's, that's a great question. So I think it depends on the type of hair loss. So if we're dealing with an inflammatory type of hair loss like CCCA or dissecting cellulitis or LPP, I often tell patients, let's try to control the inflammation first um, because a perm or a hair color, especially the, the permanent type of hair color, may actually incite some inflammation. And so, you know, let's, let's try to get things under control before we go that route. However, a rinse um, for, for hair color should be fine. Um, that, that's not really a chemical treatment in the same, I don't think of it in the same way. Um, but yeah, I do ask them to, to hold off. But things like uh, telogen, effluvium, um, androgenetic alopecia, I think it's fine. Uh, but the other thing I think is important, when patients are dealing with hair loss, if they already have hair loss and then they're getting, you know, their grays are showing, it's just another thing that they're dealing with. And so if it's something that means a lot to them, I tell them, go ahead and do it, we'll, we'll figure it out. 
Can you show us the area you biopsied on the female FFA patient? Um, let's see. Sure, if I can. Can I go back to my slides? Um, but basically, the, the lady with the sort of braid around the, the, the front of her, her scalp, I would go back maybe an inch from where you see the obvious scarring hair loss. Um, and you certainly want to focus in on any area where you see perifollicular erythema if it's present. If not, just, just about an inch or even half an inch back from the obvious area of hair loss. As long as there are follicles there and it's close enough to the active border, you'll get some information. What dose of ILK do you use? I like 10 milligrams, the 10 milligram per kilogram dose. However, if the patient has atrophy on the scalp, um, and you'll see that some CCCA and LPP patients, their scalp, their dermis is actually quite thin already, probably from the disease process, then I'll use five milligrams per kilogram, but my default is 10. In traction alopecia, is it, okay, is it okay for patients to still have tight braids or heavy braids, braids attached further back on the scalp? No. So if a patient has traction alopecia, we do a lot of education about the cause. And I never tell patients you can't do braids anymore, but they, they'll have to change the types of braids. If they continue the same hairstyling practices, it's just gonna pull that hairline back further and further and further. So if they like to wear braids, um, I recommend that they wear braids that are light. So there are different types of hair that's used for braids and some hairs are lighter than others. And that the hairstylist uses a bigger section of hair into the braid versus small pieces of the hair into the braid. So you kind of um, spread out the tension a little bit. But no, that's a good point with traction alopecia. You have to, you have to stop the practice that's causing the traction in the first place. Any pearls when addressing hair loss in patients who present from the hair club for men and present already wearing wigs? Um, allergic contact derm to adhesives or underlying scarring hair loss. So, so patients already presenting wigs, I guess I'll, I'll attack that part first. So of course, if a patient has hair loss, they're going to try to hide it even before they come in for treatment. And unfortunately, what we're seeing is um, the wigs, so you might have CCCA, but then you're wearing a wig and the wig is actually causing traction alopecia on the frontal hairline. So one thing that we recommend for patients is to one, always wear a wig cap under the wig and a satin or silk wig cap is much better than the, the one that looks sort of like the nylon stockings. The nylon wig caps kind of catch the little hairs and pull them out eventually, whereas the satin and silk caps uh, do a lot less damage on a day-to-day -day basis. Unfortunately, they don't feel as secure uh, when the patients wear the wig, but they can, they can get used to that um, feeling um, and secure it in other ways. Uh, how do you classify as cr uh, crown or vertex um, and walk through the locations of the scalp? So, so this is actually uh, something that some of my colleagues take very seriously. So the crown of the scalp technically is here, right, where you would wear a tiara, technically. The vertex is back here. So CCCA can occur, I think, on the crown or the vertex, but I think we all just say vertex. This is the parietal scalp, this is the frontal scalp, and this is the occipital scalp back there. 
you recommend sulfur H shampoo for which scalp symptoms and how to use? And is it OTC? So sulfur H shampoo, patients love it. Um, it's over the counter. It's been around for a really long time. And sulfur was one of the first medications we ever used for seborrheic dermatitis. So um, it can work for seborrheic dermatitis. And it might actually be less drying than ketoconazole shampoo. Uh, so if patients like sulfurate, I tell them, keep using it. How many scalp biopsies will you perform at once in the size of the punch biopsy? And where would you biopsy? So uh, I do two scalp biopsies, again, so that one can be um, cut transversely, one can be cut in a longitudinal way. Dr. Len Sperling, who's like the dermatopathologist that made uh, many of the, um, you know, a lot of the inroads in CCCA and other types of uh, scarring alopecia pathology, he actually recommended at one point that you do three. So two in the areas that you're worried about and one from the occipital scalp so that the pathologist can compare an unaffected area. Um, but I, I just stick with two. I use a four millimeter, four millimeter punch and again, just on the periphery of the active area of, of the hair loss, not in the center. More scalp biopsy pearls. How deep do you go? I go to the hub, um, so as deep as possible, because the hair follicles are in the deep dermis and sub-Q. So you want to be able to give your pathologist some sub-Q tissue, so I, I go to the hub. But again, some patients with alopecia, their scalp is pretty atrophic already. So, you know, just um, if their scalp is already thin, just go to sub-Q and you'll sort of feel when you uh, get into the sub-Q and you can stop there because otherwise you'll hit galia, which I have done. Um, let's see where else. Do you stay away from any location on the scalp due to risk? Um, not really. I... I I'll biopsy anywhere on the scalp. When do you remove stitches in the scalp? Uh, it's the usual seven to 14 days, uh, uh, just like you would on the body. And can you apply dry sol in the wound? I suppose you could, but usually it's just filling up with blood. I mean, this is not a drip. This is a pour half the time. So I, I don't think dry sol or... Um, uh, electrocautery is helpful in that case. I think you need some he good hemostasis with your epinephrine. And that little technique with the scissors, I'm telling you, it works like a charm. It's completely dry. You can see everything that you're doing um, until you're ready to, to, until you put your stitch in. For scalp biopsies, our text will section one four millimeter specimen, both into horizontal and vertical sections. Any opinion on one versus two biopsies? So that's that's fine too. I do know some pathologists who just take the one um, the one punch and divide it in half and do what you described. Uh, but the pathologists I've worked with always thought that two was better than one because they got to see more follicles. So thank you. This has been a presentation of Dermcast.tv, the official online media resource for the Society of Dermatology PAs.